Hey everyone, uh, so good to be back with you guys. Um, I've been away, I've had a few weeks off to be with my family. Uh, my wife just gave birth to our first child, Georgie, and uh, she's doing great. She's a wonderful little baby and we're having so much fun, getting used to a new rhythm of life, um, just really expanding our family and it's been really, really amazing. So, um, But I'm so happy to be back here with you guys this evening. And uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in our House of Acts series and we're gonna be in Acts chapter 11 uh, this evening. And really, as I thought about this message, I thought there has really never been a better time to go through the book of Acts. It was really the story of the birth of the church in the midst of adversity. And uh, what history has shown about Christianity and about the church is that the church tends to thrive when it's decentralized and not the majority culture. The church tends to grow when it's been decentralized and it's not a part of the majority culture. See, really, there are two types of faith cultures that I see at play in America and certainly around the rest of the world as well, and that's this. There's institutionalized faith in which a society has a collective understanding of world origins and kind of the narrative kind of behind the world that they exist in, but very few people within that faith culture um, engage in personal heart-to-heart -heart obedience and relationship with God. That's maybe when you when you see like church monocultures or Christian monocultures that are um, just kind of a centralized uh, church culture. Everybody goes to church, it's just what you do. But there's another kind of faith culture, and, and that's really where faith is the real thing. It, it, you start accessing the things that Jesus actually died for through that one-on-one -on -one personal relationship and discipleship journey with God that requires of you death to self. And really, there is something about a culture experiencing a level of cost or experiencing a level of adversity that will move people from that institutionalized faith into the real thing. And, and I think that's where we're at just culturally in the church here in America today. Uh, with COVID-19, with this virus, a lot of people are assessing the cost, especially even with the, with the cost of not being able to gather together in a corporate space, worship together, all of the entertainment and enjoyment that comes from a Sunday gathering. You're really having to get back to the real thing. What do I really believe about God personally? What are my motivations? What kind of relationship do I have with him? And I just think that that's been, that, that's been the case for me, at least over the past couple months. Um, I truly have never felt more of this in-process saint feeling than I feel right now. Um, all sorts of issues have come to up in my life, come to the surface, things that need to be pruned, things that really cannot exist in a personal relationship with God and just have to go. And uh, so what I want to do, maybe you feel like you're in a similar place as me. Um, so what I want to do is I want to look back at the first church who experienced far more displacement, far more trouble than we have, and they still thrived in it. They were able to win in it. And I want to use their experience as kind of a jumping off place for us to have a little bit of a family chat, more of kind of a Saints Hill specific message. So let's get going. Look down at your Bibles, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 is where we're going to pick up. It says this, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, remember Stephen being stoned, they, tra they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. 
Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch. Notice this. And they began to speak to Greeks also. There's a cross-cultural thing happening. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. He knew Antioch is this hot spot. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This actually happened during the reign of Claudius. Verse 29, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Really cool moment in the church, just focusing in on the church of Antioch. And, and what I want to do is I want uh, you to see a few important points uh, from this portion of the story in the book of Acts. Because what could maybe on the surface look like an innocuous or just simple storytelling with very little action is actually a glimpse into the kind of church that changes the world. The first thing that we see is this. Persecution led to a new opportunity. There was persecution that came against the church, and it led to a new opportunity. What we have to surmise is that when Stephen was killed, it emboldened the people who were against Jesus. It, they literally drove Jesus' followers out of Jerusalem, the capital city of where the Jesus movement had begun. And uh, here's where we see that God can actually bring good out of any situation. They end up starting churches in these various places throughout the Greek world because of this persecution. And it's really one of those situations that it's not like, hey, we just made lemonade out of the lemons that we had. I guess we're here. We might as well start to plant churches. Really, this moment of the story, this is the first time we see in all of the book of Acts where we see the Great Commission actually being, uh, the last part of the Great Commission being started. Um, if you remember the Great Commission, Acts 1 verse 8 says this, but Jesus speaking to his disciples, but when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And really what Jesus was giving them was a vision for starting small and slowly expanding out into the rest of the world. And in the first century mind, Antioch certainly was part of the ends of the earth and the beginning of that ends of the earth strategy of the gospel. This is a groundbreaking moment uh, for the church. And what this gets at is that the early church had a very different view of bad things happening to them than many of us have. 
Um, it's a challenge for me, to be honest, uh, to go through difficulty and to remain uh, with that kind of entrepreneurial kingdom mindset intact. Uh, I, want a, I want a life without bad things happening. Um, I, I don't particularly love the season that we're in as a nation right now. And I, I think it's somewhat of a natural impulse to want to try to have a good, clean, um, neat, and even enjoyable life. Uh, we are one of the first societies, though, that has this ability because of our wealth to mitigate uh, adversity and to certainly medicate adversity when it comes. But our ancestors, these first Christians, they had a worldview that allowed the bad to come. Not that I'm sure they would have preferred the bad didn't come, but they, the bad could come. And they had a way of using that bad to fuel them for new opportunities for the church and for the gospel. Um, in the book of Acts, we see these times of peace, right? We see uh, just a, there was a recent refrain in one of the chapters before this that said, and the church ex experienced a time of peace and it grew in favor with God and man. So you, the, the church is growing in number in these times of peace, but also we see these moments of chaos where the church also grows in both. What is that? What I think we're seeing is we're seeing an agile church. A church that's able to uh, duck and dive and juke and move regardless of the circumstances. I, I think about a gauntlet. If you were to go through a gauntlet like American Ninja Warrior, the television show, um, there's times where the, the competitors are at rest and they can pause and they can kind of take in what's about to happen. And then there's times where they're moving through an obstacle and you think to yourself, I don't even know how you could move through that obstacle, how you could reach there, stand there, um, or, or any of that, right? And um, their, their ability is to make it through the gauntlet is to be agile, to continue to move forward even when trial comes. And I think that's what we're seeing with the church is that they're able to actually move forward even when the trial comes. I think that can only happen if you have this kind of a worldview. A worldview that says God intends good for all people, the enemy intends the opposite, that if you have that worldview, that will help you interpret the times that you're seeing and then push you to reach those who need a touch of heaven. And we see this happening in this church in Antioch. Look down your Bibles. Verse 27 says this. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So the second thing that we see in this church is that they were able to receive a prophet and then from prophetic insight, act become generous, right? Even a prophet with a warning word. Um, it's pretty easy to hear a prophetic word that's good or that's fun or that's happy. Um, I love those words. I get those words all the time. I think that you guys give those words. We give those in our church and many people are encouraged by those words. Um, but it is tougher to have a prophetic word that is a warning. I've gotten some and you go, whoa, really? Are you sure about that? Oh man, that doesn't sound super fun to step into. Um, but the church at Antioch, they were durable enough in their relationships with God to listen to him and then to self-sacrifice financially. Every church 
uh, that chooses to give room to the Holy Spirit to speak through people has to get good at holding words lightly or holding words open with open hands. Um, and, and you have to get good at filtering everything that you're hearing through the lens of God's goodness as expressed in the scriptures that we have right here. See, see I want you to see this. Notice that they choose to give. Notice that they choose to be generous. See, if they had viewed this famine coming as God's judgment, would they have sought to undo what God was intending to do? If God wanted to bring this famine uh, for whatever reason, and there was this prophetic word about the famine, hey, God's doing this, I don't know that they would have gotten generous. I don't know that they would have tried to undo that. But they have a, instead they have this uh, worldview that doesn't view natural disasters in that way. They seek to do what they believe God would want for these people, to care, to shore up weakness, to, to uh, provide for uh, needs. So, so they have this completely different understanding based on their understanding of the scriptures and of God's goodness. And lastly, notice that the church receives its first title. Look down at your Bibles with me. Verse 26, later on in the verse, it says this, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Um, they're first called Christians. The word Christian means little Christ. So why are they called that in Antioch? What, what is specific about this place? What's so important about this place? Of all the places that the disciples of Jesus could have received that title, you know, Jerusalem included, why here? Well, probably because this church was actually acting like Christ. They were a successful church because they acted like him. They lived like Jesus here. It seems that they have a really good grasp on the gospel story and how that gospel story blossoms out of the Jewish story. We're going to get to more on that later. But really, this is a groundbreaking moment in the story of the capital C church. Antioch becomes the strategic point of the kingdom. It becomes the strategic bulwark of the kingdom. I'm going to show you a couple photos real fast. So here's modern-day Antioch. Modern-day Antioch is in Turkey, and uh, as you can see, it's an, just an inland Mediterranean town. Um, it was it was a wealthy place. You can see this. It has the the world's largest um, ancient uh, tile working on a floor that's still intact. And so there's there's this remnants of this wealthy and sophisticated place. Antioch was a major city in the Roman world. And it was also one of the most important cities in the spread of Christianity into the Gentile world. In the story, we can even see that Paul wants to go there. He's strategically reaching the ends of the earth um, through the city of Antioch. And the reason Antioch became this launching city for the gospel of the for the spread of the gospel into the non-Jewish land um, was because of their understanding of the gospel that led them to solve the church's first race issues. See, Antioch um, was also considered a very diverse church, which means that it had to keep the gospel message central in order to not get caught up in the sociology of the day, which is why you see this story in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 11 says this, When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group or the Judaizers or the Jewish people. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. 
When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you're, you are a Jew and yet you're acting like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So Peter, um, at, at one point in time, ate with anyone. But when he comes here to Antioch and the Judaizers show up, the Jewish sect who say that you have to be circumcised, you have to follow Jewish customs in order to be a follower of Jesus, he gets scared of them and he stops the cross-cultural meals that he had previously been having. Now what's interesting is that we know that Peter has had the vision that all food is okay to eat, that the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit too. And so here, what was once held in theological theory is put to the test physically. And the question is this for Peter, is the gospel big enough to change everything, even the way you relate racially, even the way you relate religiously? See, it was a gospel issue. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I confronted Peter for being rude, or I confronted Peter for his racism, or we canceled Peter because he's a bigot. He doesn't say any of those things. No, he says, this is a gospel violation. I saw that he was acting out of line with the gospel. And simply, here's the violation. Verse 15 says this, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified or made right with God. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this, the gospel levels the playing field. No one gets to hold up good works. No one gets to hold up their good traditions. No one gets to hold up their good morality as a way of getting in with God. We all get in with God the same way, God. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. I can only be justified by you. That's actually how you get in with God. And what that does is it dismantles this race game. You can't hold your race above any others. You're equal in Christ. And to bring it even more to present day, you can't hold up some kind of victim status that gives you rights to certain societal benefits. Both people, whether victim or whether the majority culture have to view themselves as what they really are in Christ. Identity in Christ as a child of, as a child of heaven and less of a child of this world. And what this tells me is that if they could have this sort of conversation in Antioch, then Antioch must have been a place of a great foundation and consistency of gospel theology. It had to be a gospel stronghold, if you will. See, it takes a culture to confront a culture. And there was a cultural confrontation here between Peter and Paul, which shows us that they had developed such strong identities in Antioch as Christians, as little Christ, that any other culture couldn't take root or thrive there. It would inevitably be confronted head on. Here's what I think we need to see. Identity in Christ, having a gospel identity, is an immune system for the viruses of hell. Little COVID contextualization going on right there. See, Antioch represents an effective church, a church that the world change comes out of because of its gospel um, foundation that it had. 
Now, what aspects did Antioch have? It's really common, I think even common to our church. They had Bible teaching, they had prophecy, they had generosity. Um, Antioch was so solid in this unifying ability between race and class that it became the hub for the rest of Christianity moving into places of various races and various classes. It's really a simple message, but I want to use this shared history that we have with Antioch uh, to talk a little bit about where I see Saints Hill today and where we're going in this near future. So with my time off uh, and my time at home, I've really been asking myself this question. Are we an effective church like the Church of Antioch? Are we set up as a gospel bulwark, a gospel stronghold, so that actually world change can come through Saints Hill? Um, some of you may have, uh, be familiar with Simon Sinek uh, and his book, Why, How, What? In his book, he basically says this, every organization, every business, every family, every endeavor has to understand why they do what they do, how they're gonna do what they do, and what the ultimate product will be of what they do. And he says this, the why matters so much because without the why, you not only lose motivation for what you set out to do, but authenticity of the original mission will be lost. Sometimes if we don't stop and evaluate why we do what we do, we can end up doing the right things for the wrong reasons, which tend to actually corrupt the right things, or we can do the wrong things for what we think are good intentions because our intentions have never actually been questioned. And one of my deepest uh, pursuits for our church, and I know it's one of the deepest pursuits of Jacob and Andoni and Bria and Jim, um, is for authenticity within our church. Um, not authenticity of feelings, like I don't wanna get up here and just bleed on everybody. This is how I feel and this is what's going on and isn't that so awesome that I've been so honest with you? No, no, no. We want to be honest and authentic about the gospel truth and how that confronts who we are today. We want to stay the course with our vision. Uh, we wanna be a healthy, effective church regardless of cultural tides or an agile church. And in a season where you can literally go to any church online, I've been really asking myself this question, why Saints Hill? Why do we exist in the midst of all of these other churches and great endeavors that are going on around us? Why do we gather and why do we organize? So here's, here's what I wanna say just as a pastoral word um, to you, Saints Hill. We exist ultimately to worship Jesus and to be fathered by God. Why do we exist? We exist to worship Jesus and to get fathered by the same father that he had. And we've discovered as a church and as a leadership that you really can't get close to Jesus without moving. Jesus is going somewhere. The symbol of rest for every Christian is a yoke. And what is a yoke? It's a tool. It's an instrument for work. Um, and we also have realized that you can't get fathered without having heaven's culture rub off on you. What this means for us is that our church is designed, our church is built for revival. And practically speaking, I've had people ask me all the time, what do you, when you say revival, what do you mean? What we mean by that, we describe that in our 10 core values. Um, that are linked in this video. Uh, and I'd love for you to check those out and just refresh your mind around what is the culture of this church and what are we aiming for when we say revival. What, we're, what we are ultimately here to do is to do cultural exchange, to help people exchange personal and internal cultures 
family cultures, even societal culture for the culture of heaven. I believe that's what Jesus was intending to do when he got his spirit into humanity. And so I wanna just celebrate some of the things that we're seeing at St. Sill. We have Christians at St. Sill. We have little Christ at St. Sill. Many of you guys, and I've been on the receiving end of this, many of you guys are delivering food to people who need it, taking care of your neighbor. I've heard stories of people who are giving above and beyond what you've given in the past. We're looking at our budget and our budget is only growing because of you, your guys' giving. So just thank you so much. Um, we, you guys have been listening and actually asking God for words of knowledge for people in your lives. Um, I, cool testimony. Uh, we do words, prophetic words at the end of every one of our um, gatherings online. And recently there was a gal who was visiting her parents' house and they were watching the video and she heard her name um, in one of the words of knowledge and the word totally connected with her season of life. She wasn't really a follower of Jesus or hasn't really been following Jesus. And uh, she is really beginning to doubt her doubt and actually uh, turn back to Jesus. So just such cool stuff. Uh, I heard stories of people reaching out to their neighbors, literally papering their neighbor's doors with information if they wanna have a time of prayer or wanna just have a conversation. So um, I'm really encouraged to see so many of you just be the church right now, just be uh, Christians. And uh, it may sound strange to you, but we came here to Newburgh to change the world. And we believe that God changes the world by people getting a vision for him changing their space. No matter how small or how seemingly insignificant it could be on a global stage, just like the city of Antioch, we believe that God has designed Newburgh to be a hub for revival, a place known uh, synonymous for his presence and movement of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that just a group of people who believe that and who host his presence here actually can end up changing the world. So I just have three encouragements from this text for Saints Hill this evening. The first is this. There's a difference between building the kingdom and building the church. And we see that in this text. There's a difference between building the kingdom and building the church. Um, you can build a church and make very little kingdom difference. It's possible. And I don't know about you, but with COVID-19 and this era, it's made me just get real with my life. Um, I've got one life. I turned 30 just a couple weeks ago. And uh, I know for some of you, that's really young. For some of you, that's pretty old. Um, but for me, it's just this realization of I have this one life and that past 10 years went by like that. And I don't want to look back on any of my decades that I have in front of me and think that I could have given more. I could have pushed for more. We could have built for more. We could have seen more of God and what he intends in our time and in our space. And uh, I have this one life. You have this one life. And by the providence of God, we're here together in this time and in this place. So I don't want to just build a church. Um, the church, in my opinion, is the vehicle that serves the kingdom, not the other way around. Uh, people who are just doing church to do church, they don't become a hub for the movement of God, but a people who believe nothing is impossible, who are shaped by the gospel and prophecy build the kingdom. That's a group of people that are gonna change things. So here's our call, Saints Hill. We aren't here to build any sort or type of culture that is extra heaven, that adds to what we see the bare essentials of the way in which Jesus thought and led. 
We want to constantly get back to the basics. Why did he send, why did Jesus come? What did he send us to do? Let's make sure that we're not adding to any of that. Let's make sure we're doing that. We want to be held accountable to that. I want to be held accountable to that. I'm seeing that everything we do, whether it's worship, songs, whether it's corporate gatherings, small groups, whether it's even doing this online, it has to promote the spread of the kingdom. It has to, otherwise we have to stop doing it altogether. I want us to be like Antioch. Secondly, we need gospel accountability in our lives and in our church. What we see happening in Antioch was gospel accountability. It was a checking of church practices against the truth of what Jesus came to bring. And this is something that we constantly just, you know, you were to peek, if you were to peek behind the curtain and look into our leadership, look into the staff of Saints Hill and what Saints Hill is founded upon, this is something we are doing daily, basically, in all of our conversations by simply asking this question. That sounds like a great idea. That sounds like an interesting thought, but is that in line with what we know to be true about the gospel? How does it measure up against the gospel? This is how you build a foundation like the one they had in Antioch. And everything we do, what we pursue with our career, what we do with our money, how we speak, what our fears are, what we hope for in life, the theology we, we hold to, the interpretations that we hold to. We need to ask ourselves this question, does that seem congruent with the truth of the gospel? If not, that fear has to go. That value can't remain. That interpretation is not congruent with the rest of the text or the rest of the scriptures. And so I want us to get in the practice of doing that, of in our conversations. It's something that Jacob and I do almost every time we hang out. Hey, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? And we're both critiquing one another according to what the gospel says. Well, that's actually kind of interesting that you said that. It's interesting that you have that fear. What does the gospel say? In a, in a space of grace, in a space of peace, in a space of God's presence, but we want that gospel accountability so that we get so distilled by keeping the main thing the main thing that our message is potent and it's able to transform not only our family cultures, Newberg's culture, but the rest of the world. Lastly, we see from Antioch that they had a mission to be fruitful in the midst of chaos. A mission to be fruitful in the midst of chaos. Um, I think there's a temptation for any church right now in this time, and certainly it's a temptation for me personally, to just hunker down and wait for the storm to pass. <laughs> just say, hey, this is crazy, life's crazy, culture's crazy, uh, I don't know, you know, maybe we're gonna get back to meeting. When we get back to meeting someday, then, then we'll really get serious again, but man, I'm just on a hiatus right now. Um, but what we see in the story of the church at Antioch is that it was possible to be fruitful, not simply faithful in the midst of chaos. I, you know, it's not a trick question. Should you be faithful in the midst of chaos? Yes, absolutely. But if we only aim for faithfulness in the midst of chaos, we may never actually end up being fruitful in the midst of chaos. And so it's in cultural moments like these where we actually have to begin to get that missional grit that we're intended to have just like our ancestors and the church that has gone before us. Um, these moments of difficulty, these moments of adversity actually have the potential to make us stronger as believers, stronger as Christians, stronger as the church. Some of you may have heard of Jonathan Haidt. He uh, is a professor at NYU and he studies uh, moral evolution. And uh, he's noticed over time, uh, over generations, just people becoming more and more fragile. 
In other words, um, he, he, he sees that what it takes to break someone is decreasing in size from what it took to break people in previous generations. And he really thinks the answer to this is exposure training. He cites a study in which kids who were prone to a peanut allergy were given little corn puff snacks with peanut dust on them from the time they were six months to the time that they were five. And in the group of all of those of kids who were already prone to a peanut allergy, 70% of the children are able to eat peanuts no problem by the time they are five. There's no allergy anymore. His point in this study is this. If you think about fragility and durability, you may think of the difference between a wine glass or a red Solo cup. You knock the wine glass over, it's very fragile, so it's gonna break. You knock the red Solo cup over, nothing happens to the red Solo cup. But he says, is there something out there that when it gets knocked down, it can actually come back stronger? And what this study shows is yes, it's the immune system. <laughs> very appropriate for our time. It's the immune system. And so what Jonathan Haidt purports is that we can actually get emotional and mental immunity up, but the only way to do that is by being exposed to times and things that are difficult. You try to hide yourself, you live in a bubble, you make sure nothing bad happens to you, and you will find that your mental and emotional muscles have actually atrophied, and what it takes to break you is far less than what it takes to break maybe somebody else who was exposed to more. We are in a time where the mental and emotional immune system of America is being tested, and for many, it's been found wanting. But as the church, we have a cultural immune system within us that's the culture of heaven, and we actually get to share that with the lack of immune system that many have in our culture today. We can be a present help in times of trouble. We have the ability to ward off fear and panic through our presence with people because we carry with us the presence of the Prince of Peace. So in this time of chaos, when you could maybe be going, I wanna avoid, 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 think of it almost as like a gymnasium, <laughs> the gymnasium of life. How are you strengthening the muscles? How are you building the immune system of faith that enables you to then enter into somebody else's weakened immune system and share antibodies with them? Okay, I got too deep on the COVID thing, but anyway, here's some questions for you in the midst of this chaotic time. What are the deep motivations of your life? What's the why of your life? As you think about what the gospel is and some of the things that you host and you hold on to, if you want to be an effective person, what's the motivation of your life? What's the why? With some things being upended and ruined, what new opportunities are opening up for the gospel? If we're going to be kingdom entrepreneurs like those who went to Antioch, we need to begin to think. Obviously, the media space, online space has obviously opened up new opportunities. What else? What other opportunities? Like those, the two gals from our church who just put flyers on people's doors, just saying, hey, if you need prayer, if you wanna have a conversation, we're here. Just creative ways to reach out to people. Um, who do you want to come to faith? When you think about this time and you think about those who have the weakened immune system, they, have the, the, they don't have the ability to go through trial. They don't have the ability to go through adversity without panic. Who are those people in your life and how can you come alongside them and share uh, truth with them? This time can make you fragile like a wine glass or it can strengthen the spiritual immune system that you have if you let it. 
Many people who go through trauma, they change their personality. That trauma will end up changing their personality or their ability to live a free and functioning life. But as a Christian, we know that trauma never gets the last word. Every experience, when submitted to Christ, has the ability to become seen within the light of eternity. And rather than hardening or shattering yourself, it can actually make you more durable so long as it's seen within the light of eternity and in relationship to God. So, I know many of you uh, are probably watching this uh, who are followers of Jesus. And this is a call for you to say, how durable am I? How entrepreneur am I in the kingdom expansion? Am I just doing church? Am I just kind of, you know, hunkering down or am I actually getting out there? But I know that with the digital space opening up, there's 25% more of Americans are actually attending church because of the online format. So I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that there's probably many of you out there who are watching this and you don't follow Jesus or you're curious about Jesus and you're just not sure. I want to tell you that the gospel message is this. Jesus takes people who have nothing to offer and he turns them into world changers. He gives them incredible purpose that can't be taken away by death or fear or suffering. And so if you are in any of those places right now, fear, suffering, sickness, Jesus wants to heal you, he wants to make you well, but he won't just leave you there, he'll turn your life upside down so that it turns the lives of others upside down as well. You are invited to have your roots sink deep into a firm foundation of the gospel so that you actually bear the kind of fruit that you were intended to bear in your life. There's hope. There's a family of like-minded believers who are gathered together to see the good news of the kingdom spread across the world and you have the opportunity to join them. So I'm gonna pray over you right now and if you wanna pray with me, you can pray, pray this prayer with me as well. Jesus, we give ourselves over to you again or maybe for the first time and we say, do that deep work in us that strengthens the immune system spiritually that we have. God, would you come and would you give us insight and creativity in how to reach our neighbors and would you change our lives by giving us relationship with you in the deepest sense. In your name, amen.